News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And for us to have a little check about what's going on in national politics. And as we told you yesterday, there is a cabinet retreat going on. It's a two-day retreat. It started yesterday for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet. Let's find out what the topics have been. Joining us now is Abigail Beeman. She's been covering these. She's our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Okay, so how is it going? I understand they've been planning a path forward. What's been happening? That's right. So yesterday was really about getting briefed from external experts. And the headline here, as won't surprise you or any listeners, is COVID, 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 right? So rather than, you know, the plotting the big uh, economic recovery plan, this is really about immediate help for Canadians with case numbers rising across the country. So ministers yesterday heard from a variety of experts, uh, including Dr. Theresa Tam, uh, heads of the uh, two COVID-19 task forces. And then they brought in a little to foreign affairs in the afternoon, hearing from some key uh, ambassadors, the Canadian ambassador to China, to the U.S. and to the United Nations. Today, it's really a, an inward looking day, a chance for uh, ministers to break into small groups and, and share thoughts with each other. And uh, again, this is all really ahead of the throne speech, finalizing the details in that plan, uh, which is set to come down next week. Right. And I know we're expecting some news today from the cabinet retreat having to do with what the tariff fight in the U.S.? That's right. And we just got uh, further confirmation of that a few minutes ago as the prime minister himself headed into cabinet. He stopped and made some comments to to reporters on his way in and confirmed that Canada will be taking counter retaliatory measures uh, with tariffs, with the aluminum tariffs. This is in response to the tariffs that U.S. President Donald Trump slapped uh, on uh, Canadian aluminum last month. The government was very clear since day one when that happened, that they would be acting in a dollar for dollar measure for measure way, which in this case is $3.6 billion. But the details that we're still waiting to hear are exactly which products are uh, affected. And the Prime Minister again said that we would hear more on that from uh, Ministers Krista Freeland and Mary Ng later in the day. So still waiting to hear the specifics, but that is uh, the buzz on the sidelines here of the Cabinet retreat. Okay, and outside of the Liberal Party, there's what a COVID-19 scare in another party? What is the latest on that? Yeah, this this is a particularly interesting case because of the timing. So a staff member in the leader of the Bloc Québécois office has tested positive for COVID-19. And now, as a precaution, the Bloc caucus and the leader are all self-isolating just to be careful. We don't have further details on, you know, whether there's... A, or a, basically, that's all we know at this point, that there's one positive case and that they're self-isolating. But it's really underscoring the importance of a plan for Parliament and how they move forward, because they're supposed to come back next week. There's no deal yet on electronic voting, which is the key sticking point and obviously the key factor here in how you deal with what happens when a whole caucus gets wiped out uh, from being able to participate in the House of Commons. So literally minutes ago, we just heard from the House leader who's been updating the media uh, a little on uh, on how those negotiations are going. And Pablo Rodriguez suggested that, you know, they could move forward with Zoom votes for now. But the Conservatives have been very opposed um, to, to that, saying that they haven't seen yet, you know, a safe 
make way for electronic voting to move forward. That's still the sticking point. But really, the clock is ticking with Parliament set to resume. And this is, a you know, an example of what can happen. We also heard, interestingly, from the health minister last night on this case. Um, you know, she was asked, well, what about your own cabinet? You're choosing to meet here in person. Uh, is it safe? Look yeah. what can happen. And she said that, you know, this is really uh, the challenge that's facing employers right across the country. She likened retreats like this or meetings like this to what every single person is deciding uh, right across the country in, in whether to go back to work. And Patty Haidu said, you know, there is an importance in meeting here in person as the Liberals, uh, as the Liberal cabinet is doing. She said in their case, she's comfortable with the precautions, the spacing, the masks, you know, that are, that are in place. But she said it, it, the case with the block really underscores um, that, uh, you know, we're not out of the woods. This is still a threat, but it's also a balance for, for employers and every one of us as we as we make these choices. It is hard to believe, though, that with all this discussion all these months that they didn't have a plan for this in case something like this happened. Right. And, uh, you know, the things become complicated with uh, with prorogation and, and with guess. the work that the committees were doing to figure it out, getting getting stopped. Right. Because there was a committee that was examining how do we do electronic voting and, and how do we move forward? But you're right. This is uh, not uh, <laughs> in the big picture. It's You know, they, they have had months to try and figure out a plan. All right. Thanks very much, Abigail. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of discussion about our school system, of course, as we headed back to school last week, getting back into those routines. And of course, this morning comes the news that we do have, it sounds like, three cases of COVID-19 that are being dealt with. One at Delta Senior Secondary, one at Panorama Ridge in Surrey, another at Johnson Heights in Surrey. And it sounds like not all of them are students. One of them is a child. It sounds like the other two are teachers and there were no students involved. So how we deal with those cases, because there are going to be cases, but how we deal with them, isolate them and make sure they are you know, just isolated cases is critical to making sure that the system continues to move forward. That's how it is here in BC. It's a similar story right across Canada. But down in the States, it's a bit of a different situation, much higher number of cases and just a much different situation when it comes to how they're dealing with COVID-19 in schools. The virus is already so much worse in that country. So how are they dealing with all of these kids being back in school? Well, CBS correspondent Jim Cressula spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about what is going on south of the border. One of the biggest stories over the past couple of weeks has been the return to school for kids here in Canada. And I imagine it must be the same in your country, the United States as well. Oh, very much so. And of course, the dilemma for parents and for teachers in school systems, for that matter, as well. How safely can they do this? How safely can they bring young people back into these schools? A lot of school systems have had an issue, frankly, with teachers resigning, simply not willing to take the risk of going back into the classroom. Of course, many school systems at this point are doing virtual learning Some systems, some school systems in the American South, places like Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, they started at the beginning of the school year, in some cases two, three weeks ago, but with in-person classes and have now had to switch to the virtual learning because of outbreaks of COVID-19. So obviously a very difficult situation. And then, of course, the whole issue of parents with young children, school-aged children who are working from home. And when these kids are not in the classroom and doing virtual learning from home, that's a whole nother issue and a whole nother level of stress for these parents. 
Oh, man. Yeah. You know, and, and when we talk about the issue of parents, I know this divide certainly exists in Canada between those parents who are cautiously optimistic about sending their kids back to school and those who are either very much in favor of it or those who are very much opposed. But the impression I get in the United States is that that divide is even wider. It's much more extreme between the two groups on the two far ends of that spectrum. Exactly. And of course, I mean, in a lot of cases, a lot of these parents are saying, I want my kid in school. First off, the whole socialization angle that they get in school, obviously. But uh, there have even been lawsuits filed in some states. In Iowa, in the nation's heartland, America's heartland, there's an interesting scenario playing out in the courts. Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is demanding that schools in the capital city of Des Moines have students do in-person learning. The Des Moines school system to this point has refused to do so, and this issue is now in front of the courts. In fact, a couple of judges in Iowa have ruled within the past couple of weeks that the state does have the authority to order the Des Moines school system to have students go back into the classroom. And, of course, the teachers' union in Des Moines has been fighting this, and it's an interesting scenario being played out, in, as I say, in, in the heartland, America's breadbasket, if you will. And I'm sure the teachers are only going to become more vocal with their concerns, considering that there's now been at least four teacher deaths from those who've caught the virus since the school year began. That's right. At least three of them, the most recent, the 28-year-old teacher in South Carolina. She was diagnosed with COVID-19 last Friday and passed away on Monday. She was a third grade elementary school teacher in the South Carolina capital city of Columbia. She had taught at this particular elementary school for five years. My wife, in fact, is a retired teacher, and it's interesting to to listen to her talk to former colleagues and how they express concern about having to go back in the classroom. And many, I've, I've heard many of her colleagues say that they feel that they're under more stress than ever before, even those who are simply doing virtual or on le- online learning because of the lessons plan, the lesson plans they have to come up with. I mean, I saw a statistic recently, and I thought this was quite interesting. It's estimated here in the States, a third of all teachers are 50 or older. Quite honestly, I would have thought that figure would have been even higher, but a third of teachers are 50 or older here in the States. And, of course, they say they're certainly more at risk if they were to contract COVID-19. And what about the perspective from Washington when it comes to Trump, when it comes to Biden? What are their perspectives on the issues of back to school? President Trump has been very vocal that he wants kids in school. He thinks thinks they should be in school. Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential hopeful, has basically said, I think that decision is best made on the local level. Leave it up to the the local school systems around the country to make that decision. They know what's best. They know know what's going on in their communities in terms of of COVID-19 cases and, and leave it up to them to make that decision. And of course, also in the subsequent weeks, or as we head toward the election, whatever it is now, a couple of months down the road, to see how much more of a spread of coronavirus we have in these cities and states that are directly linked to 
school the school setting and this of course is uh, even above and beyond the situation that's playing out on on college campuses university campuses across the united states many of them many of those institutions of higher ed are now having to cancel in-person classes at least for the time being and have students go to virtual learning because again so many of these college campuses in the states are being hit very hard by COVID-19 outbreaks. Well, hey, Jim, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to chat with you as always. Listen, stay well, stay safe, stay healthy. This is Mornings with Simi. So right now we want to help you get to know somebody that you have probably seen for months now. It's Nigel Howard, and you've seen him from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix's press conferences that they have in the afternoons, right? He's probably BC's most famous sign language interpreter. He is now also teaching UBC's first accredited ASL course, and he uh, spoke to actually our Nikki Reitmeyer via interpreter, Deborah Russell. I have heard more people recently talking about ASL since you've been assisting with Dr. Bonnie Henry's press conferences over the past few months. I imagine for you, it must be really enjoyable to see such a surge of interest in ASL. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's been a huge honor to uh, serve Dr. Bonnie Henry, and I think it's been really nice. Uh, Historically, access has been provided with closed captioning, which is not sufficient for the deaf community. It's not our first language. English is our second language. American Sign Language is our first language. And I think for many years, ASL or other sign languages have been somewhat hidden. And so now, We're very present and people are seeing the language visually in terms of what it can represent. So it's been a great model. You know, that's really interesting and forgive my ignorance, but I've never thought of it that way before that ASL would be your first language, English would be your second language. Yes, that's correct. We grow up using that sense of vision. That is how we take in information. You as a hearing person, you take information auditorily and, of course, there's always been a medical perspective that deafness is an audiological issue. But what we would like people to know is that it's a minority community with its own language, its own culture. And so people of the eye, so to speak, people who take in the world visually are just like everyone else. You grew up with your first language maybe of English and learned French as a second language. We grew up using sign language as our first language and English as the second. When we talk about deaf culture... I imagine that that's something that people who take this accredited course at UBC will have more access to, that it's not just about learning the language, it's about learning more about the culture as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. I often say this, is that you cannot learn a language without learning something about that culture, and you can't learn about a culture without learning something about their language. The two are so intimately tied. So I, as a deaf instructor... I bring forward that language, but also that cultural capital, that knowledge, because I'm deeply involved in the deaf community. And so I can teach students about the norms. How do you get somebody's attention by tapping their shoulder and so on? The patterns and norms of behavior that are part of our visual world. That is interesting. So how will the course be structured? 
just as a French immersion course would be structured. You wouldn't use spoken English in the classroom while you're learning French. The same applies to learning ASL. So there's no spoken English. It's that immersion experience, which often is a little unusual for students as they first come in. They're used to hearing language. And so to, to be in a different environment takes them a little bit. But I think that uh, they get a warm introduction and start to develop that fluency. So it's a physical approach to teaching language interactively. And they're going to have to use their bodies, their faces, their arms, their hands. And it's the basic uh, conversational terms that one would learn in an introductory spoken language course that leads to then interaction. And so just as French or any other spoken language is taught step by step. ASL is taught in the same way, but it is that more visual and you have to use your body more to you in order to use the language. It's funny that you give the example of learning French because right now I'm actually trying to learn French and I'm really struggling with it. I really am kicking myself for not paying more attention in my high school French classes. I've heard anecdotally that it can be more difficult to learn a language the older that you get. Is it the same for ASL? Is it tougher to learn it the older you are? I don't know that that's actually true. I mean, I recognize that it can be perhaps harder physically maybe for some people to make hand shapes, but um, I don't believe the adage that it's it's too late for an old dog to learn new tricks, so to speak. I think when people come with sufficient motivation and energy and openness, and the class, as I said, is very interactive. And so you're required to use the language as you're learning the language. And so, yes, there can be the struggles. Those are just natural with all humans, whether they're learning a sign language or maybe a spoken language. But the more practice and interactive it is, the more fluent one can become. And I think that, again, it's that ideological shift from this is not just a problem of the ear. This is a language and culture, not a problem at all. What are, if there are any, challenges or difficulties that you think you'll be facing teaching this course online this semester? Yes. Online is not always the best uh, scenario, and I think that probably applies to multiple disciplines. But I know that our priority right now at UBC is to, of course, keep our students safe. And as Dr. Henry has been warning all of us, this is the work that we have to do. And so taking that to heart, we have to do it online, of course. But the language is a three-dimensional language. And so it'll require me to be a bit more creative um, because hopefully in the January term, people can be socially distant and in person. So hopefully we can be back in the classroom then. Well, thank you so much. It was really great speaking with you. And for anyone who wants to take this course, I imagine since it's a UBC accredited course, it might not be open to the general public. But for anyone who's listening to this who does want to learn more about ASL, how can they go about getting that training? Uh, yes. So there are several places that one can learn American Sign Language. UBC uh, makes it available through the Department of Linguistics. There's also uh, continuing education, continuing studies, Vancouver Community College, Douglas College, through their Modern Languages Department, and the University of Victoria. I also teach there as well, too. I commute back and forth, and that's a credit course as well, too. So there's credit and non-credit available at several venues. Hey, thanks again so much. It was really great chatting with you both. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to talk with you. And I hope that uh, people do get out there and learn the language. 
Well, I'm certainly inspired after that. That is Nigel Howard. You know him from the Dr. Bonnie Henry press conferences. He's probably BC's most famous American Sign Language interpreter, now teaching UBC's first accredited ASL course as well. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this past weekend, I know a lot of the focus was on all the wildfire smoke out there, but for bars, it was a bit of a different situation. It was the first weekend since those new COVID rules had come into effect, and those rules stated that bars must stop serving alcohol by 10 p.m. Some bars are reporting that they lost a lot of money, up to 50% of business, even considering that they've already had reduced revenue because of the pandemic situation. Uh, We are going to be speaking to a bar manager about that coming up in this half hour. But this is also going to be a topic of conversation at today's Vancouver City Council meeting. And for more on that and the plan on homelessness and everything else that's going on, we are joined now by Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. So let's just talk about the homelessness issue for a moment here. Are you pleased with how things went yesterday with the vote to move that plan forward? I am, yeah. So what happened yesterday was that the mayor's uh, special emergency motion was uh, melded with uh, a motion that had come forward from councillors Bly and Weeb that was scheduled to be on the docket today. Uh, and then a, a bunch of other thoughtful amendments from other councillors uh, and it really came together as a sort of proactive strategy that recognizes, you know, essentially... Uh, between COVID and the opioid uh, overdose crisis and the the homeless emergency that's ongoing, we really are in a disaster kind of situation here in the city of Vancouver and uh, with the largest homeless uh, or unsheltered camp in in the country uh, being here in Strathcona Park that we recognize that the status quo is not working and we really have to do something, anything differently. So so the direction is for staff to come back and consider a, a number of options on what we can do as a city to step into this role, recognizing that it's not our role. So it's also really putting an ask to senior governments to partner with us and to to help facilitate this. But what we we just need to do something different because it's it's not working. Are we moving fast enough, though, given that bad weather is coming? I would say no, but uh, I appreciate that we we did get this done uh, yesterday and uh, the, the staff report back will be pretty rapid. So by our next cycle, which will be uh, the beginning of October, we'll have some, some clear sort of direction from staff as far as what things will cost. Uh, so we're sort of doing our due diligence there, and then we make an informed decision and move ahead. Um, my, my, my own thinking is that the, the notion of finding public or private land where we can set up sort of disaster response uh, triage kind of approach the same way we would respond to a disaster if it was, say, a wildfire or a flood or an right. earthquake, is actually find some spots, set up, you know, a secure facility, basically, that allows for security of folks who are who are there and their property, and, and use that as an opportunity to triage people into more appropriate permanent homes. So this is essentially what the the province is right. looking at with their navigation centers, except we're, we're scaling it up six months sooner, because as we know... The, all the commitments from the province are about six months out as far as temporary modular housing and, and the navigation center and even the permanent modular housing, which is years out. Okay, so there's more to come on that for sure. We're going to be talking to the mayor a little bit later. But let's also talk about the bar situation because I'm sure you're hearing about this as a city councillor. A lot of bars are saying that this past weekend, business was really, really down for them. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, no, and and, and worse, actually, hearing a, a number of places are, are just deciding to throw in the towel and permanently close down. Uh, I've also heard in the neighborhood of about a thousand jobs lost. So it, it, it's a pretty significant hit on an industry that's obviously been been really struggling. 
Um, so I, I, the other big concern actually is that uh, that this may be driving a lot of sort of later night activities underground, where there'll be no contact tracing and 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 none of the the the, the protocols in place to you know safely uh, gather folks while respecting the provincial health orders. So. I think a lot of the, the, the concern around how this was rolled out, and it's totally understandable, of course, because, you know, Dr. Henry's role is to respond rapidly to, you know, emergent kind of situations in this, this health crisis. Um, but I think what many would like to see is, is an opportunity to sort of reflect, okay, so these guys have been operating totally as per instructed, and they've been doing all the right things, and how do we sort of reward them? But at the, at the same time, go after the bad actors, because there are... Uh, operators out there who have been completely flouting the provincial health orders, and that's resulted in this sort of, you know, rather heavy approach across the board. And so I think trying to find a balance to recognize that some actors are good and some actors are bad, and 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 really, at the end of the day, promoting best practice, right. which I think is what we all want to see. Is there a way for Vancouver City Council then to get involved with that, with Vancouver Coastal Health, to say? Yeah, this is like this bar has earned reopening as opposed to all bars opening. Well, I think that's that's that that's where I'd like to see things go, and that'll certainly be the sort of tone I think that will come up today. I mean, obviously, this is an emergent uh, issue, so there's not uh, anything on the docket specifically, so this will be kind of covered under new business. But I think that's the approach that would probably make the most sense: is trying to find a way that we can. Uh, as you know, the provincial health order did grant uh, local governments more authorities to to move in and, and, and enact bylaw fines and, and the like and enforcement against folks who are, you know, overly large gatherings and that right. kind of thing. And again, you know, the big concern is we, you know, this is like the 1920s all over again, where absolute prohibition drove a lot of activity underground. And, and, and my concern is that it's inherently more risky. And, you know, should we see some kind of outbreak at an underground party uh, with no contact tracing, it could have uh, fantastically more uh, viral spreading. But we were having that already, though, weren't we? Like, we, there were videos, you know, that would circulate of people gathering on Granville Street late at night and parties that we heard about happening in penthouses. And, like, that kind of stuff was already happening. Yeah, and I, and, and, and I think the concern is it'll happen more um, in the absence of, of safe alternatives. So what is your plan for that? Like, what can Vancouver City Council do moving forward? Well, I think, uh, you know, an approach working with the provincial health office, and again, this is a provincial issue, so I would imagine other regional and local governments are are thinking around the same lines, is how can we, you know, support our local businesses and local jobs uh, and support them to do the right thing? And, you know, I think one one piece that is very obvious to me is we've heard of some violators, some folks who are operating with no regard for public safety or the public health orders, uh, and, 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 getting multiple sort of violation tickets. And as far as I'm concerned, there should not be multiple opportunities if you a one yeah. strike you're out kind of thing. And and I think that's where we could probably better focus in partnership with Coastal Health and the Provincial Health Authority. And, you know, you uh, disregard the, the, the Provincial Health Order, then you're shut down. Right. So obviously you think that then there's room here to go back to the Provincial Health Officer and say, let us do this? I, I hope there is, yeah. All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. 
How would you feel if a single family lot in your neighborhood was allowed to become multiple homes and without a whole lot of hoops to jump through to make that happen? Would that help to make a neighborhood more affordable? It's one of the ideas being put forward by Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart to develop more middle-income affordable homes in the city. He joins us now to talk more about this plan. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, good morning. So how does this work? What do you have in mind? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So uh, we've been working on this, uh, my team and I have been working on this for over a year, consulting with architects and builders and financers and profs and you name it. So how this would work is that uh, 60% of the city is zoned for single detached homes. You might be able to build a duplex, but uh, this would allow, um, uh, it's the pilot project, so it will allow up to 100 uh, projects where the single-family lot, the single-detached-house lot, you could have up to four uh, strata units on it. Uh, that means for sale at a regular market price, as long as up to two additional units are available uh, to sell at or rent at below market rates uh, for, the, for the life of the building. Okay, so you're talking about a single-family lot that could potentially fit six homes on it? Yeah, now we've worked with architects all through the summer, and some of them were on uh, my uh, media briefing that I gave yesterday, uh, that uh, th- they would still be just about the size of an average home. So you're not going to see a huge towers or anything in people's neighborhoods. You're, you're going to see uh, small but affordable homes in uh, neighborhoods that people haven't been able to live in for a generation now because they're so expensive. So this right. would dramatically lower the price. Uh, especially for those uh, units that are uh, in perpetuity, they're held there for uh, in blow market uh, conditions. So you're talking about going upwards, like something that could be three, maybe four, four stories high. We have uh, some pictures on our on our website, uh, makinghome.ca, that kind of begins to show you. There are some examples around the city, but uh, Portland, Oregon, has really turned their whole city into this. I'm suggesting a pilot project, and I hope that the council will support me on this on on Wednesday. But uh, this would be a, a pilot, so it, it could be in neighborhoods all around the city, and we could we could build uh, out of the tens of thousands of, of lots that we have in the city, we could have some really good examples that would show us not just different forms, uh, but also different financing methods. So you could have co-housing, you could have perhaps co-ops, uh, those right. types of things. So it, it really is uh, an experimental approach to moving us forward in this uh, really unaffordable housing market. How would you make sure, though, that some of those units are kept at an affordable rate in perpetuity? How, how would you do that beyond the current ownership of that home? Yeah, we have, uh, we've done this already, for example, with our moderate income housing pilot project. Uh, and so these are, these are pretty common models that you'll find. So, for example, you might put a covenant on the deed. Uh, and that's an agreement that's signed with the city when uh, when the uh, permissions are given to to use this form. So uh, there is a legal enforceable uh, mechanisms, a number of them, that uh, that we can use to make sure this holds. Have you talked to any of the other councillors ahead of time about this? I know one of the criticisms we've heard is that the first they sometimes hear about the mayor's plans is from the media. No, absolutely. I talked to uh, Councillor Dominato. So she has a motion coming forward uh, on Wednesday uh, that we'll be discussing, and I thought this is a perfect uh, amendment. Uh, so I did count, talk to, uh, I did inform Councillor Dominato that I would be uh, putting an amendment, I think I told her last week or something, and then uh, talked to her yesterday uh, and uh, gave the councillors the text of the motion 
uh, and it's not due for debate until Wednesday, so that should give councillors ample time. Uh, as you know, we've had uh, really literally hundreds of, uh, of motions from councillors, and uh, I think that this is more time than, than uh, normal that uh, folks would get to consider something like this. How would you address kind of the NIMBY concerns with something like that? Because I feel like that's ramping up already. Yeah, I mean, that, I think uh, people are, are proud of their neighborhoods and, and change is often uh, difficult. So I completely get where people are coming from. And, and I think that's why we have uh, public hearing meetings so people can come out and express their, uh, express their you know, uh, how they'd like to see their neighborhood move forward. Uh, but uh, I think that's the debate we'll have. Uh, so the process for this will be if council approves this on Wednesday, uh, then staff will go away and come back and, um, you know, design what the pilot would look like, and then that would come back for a council vote uh, next year with the hope that this could we could be intaking uh, project proposals as soon as uh, late next year. So that's, that's the hope. Right. So there's plenty of time for debate on this and lots of time for public input. Okay, and so when you talk about the pilot project then, where would that be? Would that be in any part of the city? Yep, any part of the city that's, uh, that's currently zoned for uh, what we call RS or RT zones, which is basically single detached homes. Uh, but there are some limits. So, for example, if you have renters in your home, uh, you wouldn't be allowed to participate because we don't want to displace anybody. If it's a heritage home, that would be excluded. Uh, we have, uh, I have uh, clauses in the amendment that would uh, protect the tree canopies. So there are, um, you know, there are right. there are conditions on this, and I'm really excited. I think this is sub- this hasn't happened in the city before, and it's not like in the past where we there'd be an argument of whether to rezone the whole city into something or not. It is a pilot project w- which would give us all data to look at to see how this would actually how this is working, and that would allow us to adjust before we moved in into a permanent program. Is there a minimum lot size, though? Because, you know, in some, a lot of parts of the city, you're talking 33 by 122. Is that even big enough to support something like this? And that's, what, uh, that's why we need our expert staff to go through and look at what, uh, what lot sizes would be appropriate. Uh, so, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a planning expert. I'm, I'm somebody <laughs> governing the city, so I've worked with the industry, I've worked with uh, local homeowners, I've worked with uh, all kinds of folks that are advising on this. This is my best idea that I have to help middle-income people. And again, if it goes right, then folks, uh, households that are making eighty to $120,000 would be able to buy a home in the city. I mean, that is, you know, that that's unheard of. Right. And you think, well, 80000 is a lot of money. Well, you think, uh, you know, somebody making minimum wage working full-time makes $30,000. So, for example, two people earning living, living wage could afford to buy. Well, and what, that's exciting. What do you envision as the price of one of these affordable units? Yeah, so uh, the affordable units, we're still aiming that this would be one-third of, you know, this, the uh, kind of standard measure of it's affordable if it's one one available at one third of your income and that's the that's what the architects and some uh financing experts have told us that if we use this form some of these uh some of these units would be available at 30 percent of the income of somebody you know a household making 80 to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. so like for co-op housing is or different models yes uh any of those units that have a covenant or 
other legal uh, constraints right. on them. What kind of response have you gotten in the last 24 hours in talking about this? A lot of good, a lot of positive emails. I think there's a lot of folks renting in this city that really want an opportunity to buy here, and this offers some hope. So I think, again, you know, you got to try new things. You can't just keep hashing over the same thing over and over again. So this is a, a brand new idea we've been working on. It's it's already uh, working in Portland, Oregon. They have a they have a history here of of moving forward with this. So it's not out of the blue. It's it's copying best practices elsewhere. And so the response has been good, and I'll be talking about this a lot. I'm really hoping council gives us a chance uh, by voting yes to it on Wednesday. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you for your time. No problem. Talk to you later. That is Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, talking about his plan. It's called Making Home, and it's to help the missing middle in the housing gap, the middle income earners, and trying to find some housing for them. But you heard what they're talking about there, right? As many as six homes on one lot in a pilot project. How do you feel about that? You can email me, simi at cknw.com, or use our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's still a lot to learn about that massive blaze that just ripped through Pier Park in New Westminster starting on Sunday night. It led to some school shutdowns in New Westminster yesterday. It was all hands on deck to help fight this thing uh, for the last 36 hours. But what about now? What about the cleanup effort? What happens next? The investigation. To talk more about all of that, we're joined by Jonathan Cote, the mayor of New Westminster. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure, and good morning. Good morning. What is the situation right now? What's it like down there? Yeah, so the, the fire is uh, is still smoldering and is still an active uh, fire fire site, but uh, but has been, been fully contained. Uh, we now have crews that are able to, to be able to lift up the, the decking uh, there, and that's the only way the, the fire crews are able to, to put out, uh, out the fire. So it is going to be painstaking work, but, uh, but progress is starting to be made to, to actually go beyond just containing the fire and working on putting it out. And do we have a better idea at this point of just how much of the, the pier in the park was destroyed? Yeah, it looks like uh, the entire old uh, wooden pier structure is, is not going to be salvageable, uh, whereas uh, the fire was contained to, to that part of the park and that the new part of the park, including the festival lawn, the concession stand and the playgrounds, all of that part of the park has, has been saved. And how? what was the result of that happening then? Is it because of the construction of the new part of the park? Like, how was that part able to be saved? Yeah, well, you know, that is the, the newer part of the park, and it is, it's built different. Uh, it has concrete decking. Um, it's, it's not an old wooden deck soaked in, in creosote, so uh, it, it had a lot more advantages. Plus, uh, when the fire crews did arrive, uh, you know, they, they quickly identified that that was going to be a, an important area to create a, a fire and, and they really created a, a border to make sure it didn't jump across to the lawn or to the trees uh, that could still have been, been flammable. So the fire crews worked very hard to, to set up that line and, and protect that part of the park. It does sound, Mayor Cote, though, like it was, it's pretty devastating to the waterfront of New Westminster. What is it like when you go down there and take a look at that? Sorry, what was the question? I, I missed I said, It seems like it's pretty devastating to the waterfront there in New Westminster. What is it like when you go down and take a look at that, when you see all the damage? Yeah, well, we're, we're certainly not recommending anyone go down now to, to have a look, uh, given that uh, the air quality is, is so poor. But uh, essentially, the end of the park uh, looks relatively un- unscathed uh, there, uh, but uh, 
clearly looking at the, the part of the old pier that had the urban beach, the volleyball courts, uh, that decking is, is, is being disassembled and, uh, and is not repairable. So that part of the park will, will essentially be, be removed. Are you able to think about at this point even rebuilding? Yeah, you know, it's, it's obviously very, very early and our focus right now is, has been putting out, uh, out the fire. But, uh, you know, we, we are a resilient community in, in New Westminster and we have faced our, our challenges over the years. And I'm confident this is such an important space in our community, a heart, uh, kind of the back, backyard of, of downtown New Westminster, uh, that, uh, that we will be able to, to, to rebuild and, and, and have Pier Park continue to be the important place it is in our community. And you talked about the smoke issue. Is that still a big issue today then? Is there still toxic smoke that people need to be concerned about? Yeah, well, I last spoke to the fire chief uh, last uh, last night. And at that point, uh, you know, he, he was encouraged that uh, that some of to fire was was improving, but it is still an active fire site. So we are still uh, definitely encouraging folks to stay away from uh, the area around the park. And if you are in downtown New Westminster, to all right. Well, we seem to be losing you a bit there on the phone. But listen, we thank you very much for the update this morning. Okay, thank you. That is Jonathan Cote, the mayor of New Westminster. Now, last part, they're cut out, but he is essentially asking people to not go down there and take a look at the damage and what has happened. They are still working on completely knocking this thing down. As he said today, they do have an opportunity to kind of get more under the decking of the pier there and really make sure that they can put this fire out. It, it You've seen the pictures by now, for sure. It, it was a massive blaze that uh, started on you know Sunday evening uh, there's still the, the investigation is still ongoing at this point there's obviously a lot of work to be done on that but first they have to put the fire out and get a really like comprehensive look at what the damage is the good news is the new part of the park and the pier has been saved and that part is fine it's just all the old older part that uh, sounds like it has been completely destroyed so once again just a warning there from the mayor to please do not head down there to get a look at what is going on, that the smoke is still an issue. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we finally know who the new leader of the BC Green Party is, and it is Sonia Furstenau. Now, there were three candidates, and there was a, two ballots that finally caused the decision to be made, and Sonia Furstenau, the MLA for Couch and Valley, beat Cam Brewer in that second round. To talk now about what this means for the Green Party moving forward and the agenda that they have, Sonia Furstenau joins us now. Thank you for being here. Um, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Simi. And congratulations on the win. Thank you. Yeah, we're pretty excited. I'm also feeling incredibly grateful to the campaign team, the amazing volunteers who have worked so hard these last weeks and months, and of course to uh, to the Greens. And I'm I'm very excited to be here. Now, I know that one of the first things that you said in your press conference yesterday, your first one as leader, was to hammer it home to the premier that now is not the time for an election. What are you hearing about this? Well, I mean, there's no end to the speculation and to this conversation about uh, a potential election. We have stable government right now in British Columbia. We came together for a historic session over the summer. All three parties collaborated, passed a budget, uh, gave this government the, the go ahead to start working on recovery, which is exactly what they need to be doing, as well as focusing on the fact that we are in overlapping health emergencies. We have 
COVID-19, a global pandemic. We also have a long-standing opioid health emergency. We're choking on the smoke that's coming from the fires in Western United States. And the last thing we need right now is for our health minister and our education minister to not be working with our provincial health officer, but instead to be on a campaign trail uh, focusing on, on politics at a time when governance is needed more than ever. And I, I said it yesterday and I said it today, I, I call on John Horgan to rise to the leader that he needs to be right now in this province and to focus on the well-being and the safety and the security of the people of BC. And how would you classify your relationship with the head of the NDP? So it's interesting that we go back quite a ways. Uh, I had a meeting with him in 2013 uh, when we first started our efforts in Shawnigan to get a, a permit stopped that uh, would have allowed for 5 million tons of contaminated soil in our drinking watershed. Uh but my husband goes back even further. He and John Horgan went to high school together at Reynolds. So there's a, a long uh, connection there in the family. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that uh, he, can, he can be his better self right now. And he can focus on being the premier that this province needs in a global pandemic, uh, rather than being somebody who puts his party first. Have you spoken to him in the last 24 hours since winning the, winning the contest? Uh, I have. We had a very nice conversation yesterday evening. And were you able to kind of put forward the same thought that we don't need an election right now? Uh, I, I absolutely um, am focused on that. And I'm hoping that we will be uh, finding ways to navigate this time with the best interests of the people of BC at the forefront of every conversation and every decision we make. And for you then, as leader of the Green Party now, what are the priorities for the party moving forward? So the top priority is dealing with the health and economic impacts that have come from COVID uh, and designing a recovery strategy that ensures that people can be safe and that they have the means to not just survive, but to thrive in this altered world that we're in. We really need to focus on a recovery that includes those who have been left behind in this economy that focuses on the significant affordability challenges that are facing small business owners, renters, health and education workers, all those in the economy right now who feel themselves falling behind. Uh, and we need to sure, ensure that the recovery also positions us to build back stronger and better and more sustainably. We need a green, sustainable economy so that every community in every region has what it needs to thrive in the future years. We've waited this long to be proactive about decisions that we need to make. We can't wait anymore. We have to build the, the future that we want for our kids. And what do you think that looks like? So if you had an opportunity to contribute to that economic recovery plan that the government's putting together, what would you tell them to focus on? So focus on what makes communities resilient, focus on what makes them sustainable, focus on investing in education, infrastructure like transit, early childhood education, focus on ensuring that small businesses can weather this, this economic uh, challenge that we're all facing right now. Focus on the fact that people need housing in order to be able to uh, thrive. We've seen in Cowichan examples of people that got housing as a result of the measures that were taken during COVID. And 
have been able to to go from survival mode into uh, almost immediately turning around and contributing to their communities. And and we need to recognize that housing has to be at the forefront of how we're doing this. We have to focus on addressing inequality, which has only been rising. It's astonishing and shocking and devastating that billionaires have gotten richer uh, since COVID-19 hit. Well, people, uh, ordinary people are struggling more and more in their day-to-day lives. We need an economy that doesn't do that to people. We need an economy that recognizes that if you work hard, you will be able to thrive. And and these are the things that we will focus on. And if there were an election called for this fall, is the Green Party ready for that? So this, this leadership race has uh, created a lot of momentum and a lot of growth. We have uh, doubled the number of members and supporters in the PC Greens. We have been focusing in our campaign on building teams uh, all across the regions in BC in connecting with candidates and connecting with people that are ready to run and serve their communities. And, and we are hitting the ground running. It is not the time for an unnecessary election. It is not the time to, as we see more and more talk of a, a second wave across Canada, as the, the health minister himself is telling people to take this pandemic seriously and to, to pull back, to reduce their social interactions, to focus on uh, staying healthy, on staying safe, on, on keeping their community safe, this is we need to heed that advice and we need to focus on exactly that on making sure that we get through this this crisis this health emergency and this pandemic as safely as we possibly can all right thank you very much for your time this morning thanks simi always a pleasure